So here we find ourselves, friends. Um, the first Sunday after Mitchell's last Sunday, and again, uh, we won't keep bringing this up, but we just want to acknowledge that uh, it's, a, it's a big Sunday, right? And, and I feel quite honored to get to stand in this space that was held by um, somebody who is so beloved by this community for so many years, and it really is an honor to get to stand here in this space and to, to spend this time with you this morning and to, to share this, um, to share the word. It's, it's a, big, a big privilege to get to do this this morning. Um, I mentioned... You know, usually it's me down here doing children's time as opposed to Keith, and for the last couple of weeks, I talked a lot with our children about kind of this roller coaster of emotions. You know, two weeks ago, we had Ascension Sunday, and I mentioned this idea that you can only imagine the emotions the disciples felt as they watched Jesus ascend to heaven. After having spent all this time with him, and then watching him die, and then he's back, and then he's gone again, like it's just, you got to imagine that roller coaster that is. Uh, and then last week we had Pentecost, and Pentecost is a little wild, right? If you remember, there were kids running all over here, waving these little flag things everywhere. Like, there's just been a bit of a roller coaster of emotions um, in the liturgical calendar and the way we've been processing and working our way through this unfold series. Um, there's also a bit of a, a roller coaster of emotions that we've experienced as a community. Again, with the, the Mitchell leaving and now word of Josh leaving, also the um, anxiety, and I don't mean that in a good way or a bad way, right? Just the anxiousness that's present with a, a new pastor coming in. We have a new uh, minister to children, youth, and families who's going to be starting in a couple weeks. And I don't know if you have mixed emotions about that, but I'm like full of joy. <laughs> um, I'm so excited that Sammy Waters will be starting with us here really, really, really soon. And uh, I'm really grateful for that. It's not that I haven't loved being with our children on Sunday mornings and otherwise. It's just... Uh, we all have our callings in life, and that was not mine. So um, there's a roller coaster of emotions. And if it's not things that we're experiencing here in this community at our church, maybe it's uh, rolling into the, the gas station and having to fill up your car, or buying a gallon of milk. Um, don't, don't even check the stock market right now, right? Like, there's been a lot of things that have really gotten at our pocketbooks lately. And at the same time, it's summer. Like, there's, I don't care if you're not in school anymore. You may have been out of school for 50 years. There's just something about the way that our schedules work, even, with, again, whether you're a student, whether you're a parent, whatever, our lives just seem to revolve still around a school year. And when summer hits, there's just something about it where you're like, oh, it's summertime. How lovely is that? It's summertime. And yet, in the midst of that roller coaster of emotions, what were we met with at the beginning of this summer? A string of mass shootings. The hundredth day of the war in Ukraine. The January 6th committee revealing all kinds of just horrific images and videos. And, and if you haven't heard about this, brace yourself, because this is possibly some of the most horrific, well, they're all terrible, there was a pastor just north of Fort Worth who last Sunday said that all homosexual people should be lined up and killed from the pulpit. And then I just saw last night that outside of a Pride in the Park rally in Idaho, there was a group of, of white nationalists who were arrested on conspiracy to riot. This roller coaster feels like it got stuck at the bottom and like we can't make our way out to get to the other side. So friends, acknowledging all the things that we bring this morning, 
as Rebecca called us to in the call to worship, acknowledging what we bring to this space this morning. Take a deep breath. And recognize that we find ourselves here in the midst of chapter four of this, again, this unfold series, this year of, of exploring story. Who are we in God's story? This chapter, so, you know, we could have never planned all, all these things were going to be happening. This chapter is titled, Flawed but Empowered. Flawed but Empowered. And if, if you're like me, it, it begs the question of, Empowered for what? Sure, flawed. Yeah, we, we get that, right? We're stuck at the bottom of the roller coaster. A lot of flaw we see. But what are we empowered for? What are we called to do? And as one of my dearest friends says, what is mine to do today? As a community, we could ask, what is ours to do today? And my, my basic premise for today, after sitting with the, this text that we're going to get to here in just a second, is um, it's not perfection. It is not perfection that we are called to, at least in this moment. And if you took our Methodism 101 class, you may be thinking, but Phil, you and Keith sat there and you told us about Christian perfection. We did. And yes, John Wesley had an idea of Christian perfection, and we believe in it, and we profess it, and it's lovely, and I'm saying today that I don't believe in this moment we're called to perfection, but I do think that we're called to progress. I do think that we're called to progress. And the thing about progress is we're not always gonna get it right. Progress is a process. And my friends, we are in that process together. We are on this journey together, and thanks be to God, we are indeed empowered by the Holy Spirit on this journey, in this process. So this morning's text we're going to look at comes from Acts chapter 10. We're going to do it in three segments. And if you know me at all, you know that I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm more of a teacher. I'm, I'm happy to get up here and preach, and I'm lovely, and I said it's an honor, and it really is. But um, if you really want to join me, come on Wednesday mornings at 8 o'clock, because what I really love to do is take this entire chapter and just pour over it little by little, because there's so much in this chapter. It's such a rich text. It's so beautiful. It's such a great narrative. And we said on Wednesday morning and we talked about it and it was lovely and we could spend a couple more weeks talking about it because there's just so much in this text. And really I could preach at least three sermons on it this morning, but I'm going to, Mitchell went 31 minutes. I joked that I was going to take 32 minutes this morning. I'm not going to really do that. But um, we're going to work through bits and pieces of this chapter, but I hope what you'll do after this morning is you'll go back sometime this week and read all of chapter 10 because it really is fantastic. So we're going to start in, in verse 9 and read through 16 as our first segment here. So hear now these words of scripture. About noon the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat and while it was being prepared he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven open and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, 
and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, I really wanted to title this sermon, Why You Shouldn't Sleep on an Empty Stomach. Because apparently you never know what kind of visions you might have on an empty stomach, um, according to Peter here. This vision is essentially about the food restrictions and the food laws we find in the Torah that Peter has spent his entire life sticking to and sticking to religiously. And this may be a hard concept for us to fully grasp because we don't abide by those same laws and restrictions typically. Um, um, Don't let me speak for you, maybe you do. Um, But majority of us who claim to be Gentiles or find ourselves being Gentiles um, don't live by those kosher food laws. Now, in not living by those, we sometimes overlook the importance of those for the Jewish community. They were so important for Peter. They were so important for the disciples. They were so important for many of the early people in Judaism and still now that Jewish martyrs literally give up their lives rather than eating or breaking these food customs. Jewish martyrs chose death as opposed to breaking these food restrictions. This was serious business. So when hungry, Peter falls asleep, has said vision, hears said voice, his natural response is, by no means, Lord. Be away from me, Satan. Who are you tempting me to go and eat such things? I've spent my whole life living by these restrictions. In the same way that circumcision was an outward sign of what it meant to be the people of God, living by these food restrictions was a way that the people of of God, the chosen people of God said, this is who we are. This is how we be a light to the people, to the Gentiles, to you Gentiles. These were a big deal. So for Peter to say, by no means, Lord, is Peter being a good and faithful Jew like he was. Now what I love about Peter's response, first of all, is because of course Peter's response is by no means, Lord, right? This is the same Peter who was like, oh, jump out of the boat? Yeah, sure, here I come, right? Like, I mean, like, you could do a whole character study on Peter and, and you would spend a lot of time and it's, it would be quite fun and you'll see a whole bunch of threes, right? Don't miss the fact that it took three times for him to like get beyond this. Does that sound familiar, right? Remember Peter uh, denying Christ three times? Remember in John's gospel, whenever uh, Jesus says, feed my sheep three times, there's a, there's a theme here. It takes a little bit to get to that thick skull of Peter. And yet what we're gonna find out is that the discernment of Peter, him being perplexed, by this vision, this experience he has is something that he works out in community and something that he works out through the experiences that he then has after this vision. The text says, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. You must not call unclean. What God has made clean. Friends, this to me, as I read this and sat with this, This is it. This is the starting point. This is the crux of who we are as a people of faith. What God has made clean. Who are you to call profane? Who are you to call unclean? God made that. Are you God? And what I want to look at here is that our job, like Peter, as we look through this text, is to work out how we have been working against this premise. 
How have we been working against the premise that what God has made clean, we have then been calling unclean or profane? What, or maybe who, have we deemed profane and unclean? Now, it's important to let you know also that this didn't just happen on random. This, this move that is a quite progressive, and don't get lost on the term, right? A quite progressive move for Peter is actually coming on a whole lot of progressive moves on Peter's faith. What do I mean by that? Um, Peter has been in a process of, uh, in an attempt to be more inclusive of the faith, of the Jewish faith, of the Jewish faith of people who are following Christ, and an attempt to, to open this to, to more individuals, to bring more people in, to be more liberal in who can come into this space. He's been readying himself for something just like this. Because the text tells us at the beginning of chapter 10 that Peter is actually staying in Joppa. Now where's Joppa? Well, it's just south of modern day Tel Aviv. And Joppa is a port city. So Peter has left Jerusalem, which is like their safe place, right? This is where they spent a lot of time with Jesus. This is where Jesus left. Like, this is their safe space in Jerusalem. Now a lot of them are Galileans, so they may go back and forth to Galilee. But like, Peter has decided that this good news of Jesus can't stay here. It can't stay in Jerusalem. It can't even just stay in Galilee. We've got to get it to Joppa. And Joppa's a port city. You know who comes through port cities? Everybody. A whole lot of people. With different ideas, different mentalities. It's a place of trade. People are coming and going through Joppa all the time. Peter finds himself in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. You know what tanners do? They take dead carcasses and make things out of them. You know what Jewish people aren't supposed to do? Be with tanners. Definitely not touch dead carcasses. So much so that there are some that, that believe that not only should you not associate with a tanner if you're a good Jewish person, you shouldn't even have one in your town for fear that they may make the entire community unclean. And where do we find Peter? In Joppa, outside of Jerusalem, with Simon the Tanner. Peter has been stretching the bounds of what it means to be this person of faith, to practice this faith. And yet, in the midst of that, he has this vision, and what does he get stuck on? By no means, Lord, I will not eat that. In the house of Simon the Tanner. <laughs> By no means. Friends, old habits die hard, and sometimes they die real hard. Sometimes they die real hard, even when we have the best of intentions. When I was looking at it, it made me think of, did anybody watch the show Years and Years on HBO? It came out, I don't know, four or five years ago? No HBO fans. Okay, uh, it was actually produced by both HBO and the BBC. It was fantastic. I loved it. It was six episodes. Um, it talked a lot about, well, it covered like every social issue that you could ever imagine, but it did a lot on technology, and I love to look at technology things. But the first season, the first episode of the season, um, it has, it's all about a family, about three generations of this family. So there's like the, the grandparents, the, the kids, who then all have kids as well. Most of them have kids as well. And so one of the kids is married, and it's an interracial marriage, which you may, th again, social issues, right? And you may think, well, like, interracial marriages aren't like a big social issue anymore. I, great. I hope that's where you find yourself today. Um, 
it wasn't that long ago that it was a pretty big deal. So I, I really feel like it was intentional that they chose this couple to have this experience in this first episode of the show. So they have a kid, a daughter, who's in her, she's in her teens, and they come across something of hers, a text message with a friend, where she talks about being trans. And so they get together and they're like, what do we do? We, we, we love our daughter. Of course we love our daughter. We're going to support her no matter what. But they're, they're kind of panicked, right? They want to embrace and want to love their, their child, but they're not really sure what to do with that. So they get their daughter and they sit her down. You can tell the daughter's nervous. She's anxious. And finally she says to him, like, yeah, I just, for a long time, I've known I'm not comfortable in this body. And I mean, they're like, yes, we, we get it, we understand, it's okay. Um, and the father actually says, like, we're going to love you no matter what. We're old, and this may be confusing to us, and we may make a mess of it sometimes, but no matter what, we'll love you, you are our daughter, and if it turns out that you are our son, you, we will love you no matter what. And when he says, says, says that, his daughter looks up at him and says, I'm not transsexual. To which the mom says, oh, oh, sorry, tra- transgender, I, I, I can't keep up with the terms. And she's like, no, no, I'm transhuman. And they both have this dumbfound look on their face. What? I'm, I'm transhuman. I don't, I'm tired of this body. I don't want to live it anymore. And they're saying that before too long, we'll be able to go to Switzerland and go to these labs and they'll upload our consciousness into the cloud. I'm going to be data. I'm going to live forever as information. I'm transhuman. And the next scene, she's busting out the kitchen, running up the stairs, sobbing. And you said you'd be understanding. And the mom comes out after her and says, go to your room and don't think that you're going to get on the internet. I'm turning it off. You can't read that trash anymore. (laughs) Even with our best intentions. Wanting to embrace change, wanting to embrace progress, old habits die hard. Maybe it was for the longest time you had a hard time making sense of of what is the, the role of gay people in our church. Clearly our denomination is still wrestling with this, right? I don't know if you're paying attention to what happened in Florida this week, but an entire class of commissionees were turned down because there were two of them who were gay. So they just turned down the entire 13 commissionees who were going to become clergy people. Maybe you decided, no, like, gay people do have a place in our church, but I don't know what to do with trans people yet. Well, guess what? Our book of discipline doesn't say anything about that. (laughs) Progress is hard. It's often messy. It's not going to be perfect. For me, the best example of this was during during the last couple years, again, Keith mentioned this, police reform. After the death of George Floyd, we we know this, right? So many things changed. And this term crept up, defund the police. (gasps) You can't say that loud, right? Like, it became a term that you couldn't even say. And then I had a friend who had the audacity to say, no, no, no. defunding the police isn't far enough. We have to abolish the police. And I thought, look, I I get you. I get you. There's got to be reform. Things are terrible. We can't keep it the way it is. But abolish the police? First of all, this is terrible PR. Like, it's just not working. Because at the same time you're saying this, there's a back the blue rally over here. And she said, just come with me. Some of my friends, she's a grad student at Georgetown, D.C. She said, some of my friends are hosting a webinar about abolish the police. Just come, just check it out. 
because I love her dearly, even though I'm the old skeptical person in there, because it was all grad students and undergrad people, I was like the old white guy. Um, I show up at this webinar, because it was during the pandemic and everything happened on Zoom, and uh, I show up to this webinar, and they start talking, and, and again, these things, that I, it's so easy to support. Yes, I want to invest money in mental health resources, and yes, I want to invest in community responses as opposed to militarizing our police. I want all those things, and yet, just again, just by the term, abolish the police, just, I can't, I'm so skeptical. And then it happened. One of the conveners said, you know, police, police didn't always, that wasn't always a thing. There weren't always police. It took somebody creativity to say, we're going to start a police, we're going we're to have police to, to keep safety in our communities. It took somebody's creative mentality to come up with policing. Who's going to be the next person that's creative enough to, to think of what's best for our communities next? Because the way we see it, policing is not working, especially for our people of color. Who's going to be the most creative person to come up with the next thing? Because somebody had to come up with police. What's the next thing? I mean, it just blew me away. I don't know what the answer is. It's not me. I'm not that creative. But I want to believe that there's something else that doesn't result in in black and brown bodies continuing to be dead on the ground. I believe that, right? And the same can can be said about racial reconciliation, right? I was all on board with it until people started talking about reparations and I didn't know what to do with reparations. Like, I hear you, but also, like, is that realistic? Until a friend of mine said, realistic, Phil? Really? People own people in this country not too long ago. Fair. Fair point. The list goes on and on of the things that I can see there needs to be changed. I just don't know how to get there. I want to progress. I want to, have pro- I want to, I want to move forward on things because I know the status quo is not going to be okay the way it is. And yet so often we get stuck on, well, it has to be perfect before we even take a next step. Friends, let me tell you, we have to take a step. We're at the point we have to take a step. And I think, my friends, this is where Peter found himself. He had to take a step. And so his next step was to Cornelius. Who's Cornelius? Cornelius was the person that he was going to visit. Cornelius was a Roman centurion who was staying in Caesarea and had sent people to go get Peter, because an angel appeared to Cornelius and said, hey, there's a guy named Peter who's staying in Joppa with Simon the Tanner, and you need to get him and bring him back here. And so Cornelius said, okay. And so he sent servants, and they got Peter. Right after Peter's vision, right after Peter's vision, they show up. And Peter says, who are you? What are you doing here? Come stay the night. And then the next day, they head up to Caesarea. And Peter doesn't go by himself. Peter takes his brothers and sisters with him from Joppa and they head up to Caesarea and they enter the house of, of um, Cornelius and Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, and I don't know what image that puts in your head of a Roman centurion, but if you're a Jewish person living in occupied territory by the Roman, a centurion was a military leader, right, had led a hundred people um, and he's of the Italian cohort, so like they're like the big dogs. So I don't know what image you have in your head, but for Peter, it's probably not a great image. And yet, the text tells us in chapter 10 that he's also a devout man who feared God, who gave alms generously, who prayed constantly, that he was righteous, God-fearing, well-spoken of by the whole Jewish people. 
Cornelius was a destroyer of stereotypes. So Peter goes with his little cohort up to Caesarea, enters the house. Cornelius falls at his feet, and Peter says, get up, I'm just a man. And this is what he says, Acts 10, 34 through 35. Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every people, anyone who fears him and practices righteousness is acceptable to him. Leave that up there for a sec. Anyone who fears him and practices righteousness is acceptable to him. And you may think acceptable to him. This isn't about salvation, my friends. Um, when Carrie comes in a couple weeks, we're going to spend an entire chapter of our Unfold, Unfold series talking about the Wesleyan way of salvation and um, provenient grace and justifying grace and sanctifying, all, all these things. We're going to talk about grace and salvation. Acceptable meant, in the, in the Greek there, it means finds favor with God. Who are the ones that find favor with God? Those who fear him and those who want to do what's right. Even that guy? Cornelius? The like centurion guy? Yeah, even that guy. Friends, I'm sure we all have that guy, right? We love our ins and outs, our us and them. We love to categorize people. And yet the text clearly shows here that God shows no partiality. The, the best example on this one for me, y'all, is the interfaith work that I've done for the last, I don't know how many years, and that we've done as a community. Through Faith for Dallas this week, I had the opportunity to sit with, um, I don't know if you know Faith for Dallas, it's an advocacy group here of interfaith faith leaders in the city of Dallas that, that works to bring justice to our city. And I sat with leaders this week. This, this organization is organized by a Muslim woman. Our convener, our, our head person right now is a Jewish man, a rabbi in North Dallas. Our next convener is a queer pastor over by Lovefield. It's a hodgepodge group of people. And we sat on Zoom this week and just mourned. We mourned for all the things that we've been talking about. Because as faith leaders, it was a safe space for us to come together on Zoom and say, it's just it's too much. It's too heavy. We don't feel safe going to worship. Our, our, our queer pastor friend was having to train their ushers on how to de-escalate violence because of things that are happening in Fort Worth. It's too much. And so we sat and we mourned together as a community. Those people, right? Yo, I'm from small town Missouri. Do you know what we thought about Muslim people in small town Missouri when 9-11 happened? You can probably assume. Do you know what I grew up knowing about Jewish people for the most part? And the evangelical background that I grew up in? Well, Jews were the ones that killed Jesus. That was my understanding of Jewish people and Muslim people. And this week I sat on a Zoom meeting and mourned with those people. Those people are now my people. We mourn together. And then after mourning, we said, okay, now what's our next step? What's our response? Who's marching on Saturday in the March for Our Lives movement? What's our statement going to be? How are we rallying the faith community to come together and say, we won't stand for this any longer? What's our next step? Friends, Peter showed up in the house of Cornelius. Peter never should have been in the house of Cornelius. I never would have expected to sit in a room full of people, of those people, talking about how we're going to bring justice to our city. And yet here we are. And here's the last text, and this is where we'll end. After Peter shares this and spends time with these people in the house of Cornelius, 
This is what happens in, in verse 44 through 48. It says, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the waters for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. The thing I love about this is the Holy Spirit says, I know you love a good formula, right? Believe this, do this, and all will be hunky-dory, right? Hear this message of Jesus, get baptized, and the Holy Spirit will fall. The Holy Spirit sees it and says, get your formulas out of here, and comes and falls on these people, these people that Peter never even should have been with. The Spirit falls on those people just like they did, just like the Spirit did on us, Peter says. Who am I to withhold baptism from these people? Who are we to not open our doors to those people? Who are we to not go sit with those people in their homes, in their houses of worship, to stand with them in solidarity? Who finds favor with God? Those who fear God and want to do what's right. You know what that sounds a lot like? Those who love God and love their neighbor. Friends, it's going to be messy. As we move forward, as we progress forward, as we take our next step as a community, with a new senior pastor, as we move forward seeking the next step of progress, it's going to be messy. We are not going to be perfect. Don't let that hinder us from moving forward. What is yours to do today? What is ours to do today? Amen.